Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Colonial history is required learning, but often that history in our country focuses on the early settlers and the founding fathers. How many of us remember the perspective of an enslaved person included in our school lessons? Today, where we live, we talk with historian and author Elizabeth Norman. She's written a book for students called Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. Smith documented his life in an autobiography. It's one of the earliest known books by a formerly enslaved person. And later we talk about how Connecticut is the first state in our nation to require high schools to offer courses on black and Latino studies. First, joining me now on Zoom, Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, that's the magazine of Connecticut history, and again, the author of Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. Elizabeth, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. Later, I want to talk more about Venture's autobiography. But first, for our listeners, can you sketch uh, the life of Venture Smith for us? Uh, tell us a little bit about his early life. Well, he was born in 1729 or so. We don't know the exact date uh, in uh, in an area of West Africa, which has also not been exactly identified, but in the uh, a place that is now the country of Ghana. His name was Brotier. He was the son of the leader of his village. And, um, you know, he grew up, he was about eight or so when a, uh, what he calls an invading uh, army of a white nation, which would be uh, an invading army. Um, slavery was, uh, you know, practiced and prevalent in the area, kind of swept through his village, uh, killed, murdered his father right in front of his eyes. He was separated from his mother and his brothers and sisters and captured and taken to the coast of uh, to a well-known uh, slave trading port on Amabu and uh, put on a ship and purchased by a uh, Robinson Mumford, who was the ship steward as his kind of personal investment, uh, who na- renamed him Venture, um, very symbolically. and. Uh, he survives the Middle Passage, uh, on which many died. He doesn't talk an awful lot about that experience in his narrative, but he does say that all who survived uh, were sold in Barbados, except for himself and three other uh, enslaved people. He's brought to Newport, uh, Rhode Island, and he lives for about a year with uh, Robinson Mumford's sister, where he learns English. And he, he's there because Robinson Mumford goes back to sea. Uh, Mumford returns and then uh, takes him to Fisher's Island, where his family has leased Fisher's Island, New York. Interestingly, Fisher's Island, uh, though part of New York at at this time in the 1740s, 
early in the 1660s, 1600s had been owned and was still owned by the Winthrop family. And of course, John, John Winthrop Jr. was an early colonial governor of Connecticut. So Connecticut connection there. It's a large farm uh, when George Mumford dies, uh, Captain George Mumford, Robinson's father, dies. Uh, he has as many as 25 enslaved people. So this isn't a small scale operation by any means. So Venture grows up. Um, when he's a young man, he marries a fellow enslaved person, Meg, uh, there in 1754. There are uh, examples of his resistance throughout. And interestingly, shortly after he marries Meg, he uh, runs away with mm. also very interestingly an indentured Irishman and two other enslaved men. But he decides they they get to uh, basically off Montauk, Long Island. They just he has to sort of turn in the Irishman and return. Uh, but what happens is after that is um, Mumford decides to sell Venture um, and he sells him to this is now Venture's. Um, third owner, Robinson Mumford, and meanwhile has died, so Captain George Mumford is his owner. He uh, sells him to Thomas Stanton II of Stonington, and Ventures separated from his wife Meg and his newborn daughter, Hannah. She's literally a month old. Uh, Thomas so Elizabeth, Stanton, Elizabeth, so he would go on to have three people that owned him yeah. at one point or another. Uh, before we talk more about his adult life, uh, what was it like at that first place in, in Rhode Island under Mumford, this place that once had 25 enslaved people? Did he endure a lot of uh, torture, for lack of a better term? Well, uh, he... It, yeah, he talks about his childhood there, and he is, at first, when he's very young, he's kind of kept in, in the home, and he's he's having to stay up long long nights, he's put to work, like he talks about um, uh, crushing up corn for poultry, uh, for feed for the poultry, he has to do uh, carding of wool, there's a lot of sheep, there's sheep farming on the uh, yeah, on the farm there. What's interesting when you can, for kids to be reading this, there's lots of clues there about what kinds of activities are happening on this farm. There's a peach orchard. He gets into some trouble at one point and uh, the um, owner says to somebody go out to the peach orchard and cut me some whips, some, you know, pieces of, of uh, orchard, I mean, sort of peach tree to, to use as a whip. There's dairy, there's wheat. Uh, uh, so he's, he talks about spending very long hours, and if he doesn't do what he's told, he's he's punished. Mm -hmm. So he, um, you definitely get a sense of, uh, you know, he's 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 there from when he's about ten to when he's twenty-five. The hard work, the long days, uh, and the you know large number of people that are working this farm. You mentioned that he would go on to marry Meg, who was also enslaved. What do we know about her? Well, we we know frustratingly little except that um, you know, she's working in the house and uh, after he's um, bought by Thomas Stanton in Stonington, two years later, Stanton buys Meg, um, although he does not buy Hannah. So Hannah stays with Mumford on Fisher's Island for her entire life. But Meg uh, goes to, to live on the same farm with, with Venture, but she gets into um, an altercation with um, Mrs. Stanton and and um, Venture kind of intercedes or tries to kind of make the peace between them. But unfortunately, really what happens is Venture Smith ends up being beaten and chained and threatened with being sent to Bar Barbados. 
And really at the end of that experience, uh, he's sold again. So you get a little sense of Meg there, that she's also a strong person, a sense, has a strong sense of self and, and this altercation with um, Mrs. Stanton. He doesn't say what it's about. Um, he tries to calm things down, but um, you get a frustratingly little uh, view of, of Meg, unfortunately. But we know, you know, she endures a long life. He stayed, he marries, he stayed, married her and they have four children together. They end up free together in East Haddam and he will talk about that later, but he pays tribute to her at the end of his life. So she's clearly a, an important life mate for him. You're hearing Elizabeth Norman here on Where We Live. She's the author of Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. As we're learning more about Venture Smith, again, uh, someone who was enslaved as a boy uh, who would end up uh, living first in Rhode Island and then eventually uh, in Connecticut. You mentioned, uh, Elizabeth, that he married Meg and they had a daughter, Hannah. He was separated from them. Eventually he would go on to purchase his freedom. Tell us that story. He... uh, after, I guess by the fourth or fifth owner uh, with, and lots of adventures and lots of very interesting parts of his story, he is owned by Oliver Smith of Stonington who allows him, and I put air quotes around that, a uh, very freighted word, to work outside of the work he does for Smith to earn money. And he, this is something he has done throughout his life uh, to save money to buy his freedom. So Oliver Smith allow, kind of give, gives him a pathway through to freedom by allowing him to earn the money to buy himself from Smith. And so he eventually does that and he becomes free in uh, when he's 36 years old in 1765. He, he pays what he calls an exorbitant amount of money for himself from Smith. Uh, and, and then he sets to work to then buy the rest of his family. Mm. Remind us what slavery looked like in our state in the 18th century, Elizabeth. Well, it's typically described as kind of small in scale, although there are definitely examples of larger scale, um, little more plantation style, 20, 25 uh, enslaved people on a farm. But typically it was a minister, which surprises a lot of people, a merchant, um, you know, professional people, people with some money who uh, have hired, have, I'm not sorry, have not hired, have purchased enslaved people, one or two, typically kind of in a small scale living in the attic or um, in kind of within the home uh, and very, you know, kind of living closely within the kind of, you know, typical colonial farm. I don't want to imply that that means there was a familial relationship, uh, you know, because there, it it was always a a relationship of oppression. Uh, But uh, that was sort of the typical and, and, but, but what's interesting, and I think what's not well understood is enslaved people did all kinds of work. So they were very skilled at a lot of different things. They were shipbuilders, they were you know, they weren't just farmers, but they were shipbuilders. They had all kinds of different blacksmiths, um, you know, all kinds of different skills that they uh, attained because they were doing all of the work really of, of working in, in this colonial economy as it develops. So tell us more about the work that Venture did after he was able to buy his freedom and eventually uh, his wife and his sons. Well, he, he, that's one of the uh, kind of, I think, wonderful things about this, his story as he tells it is he describes 
so many things about the colonial economy for anybody. Uh, he is a fisherman. He does a lot of cutting of wood. And you got to think back to how important wood was in the colonial period. It heated, it, you know, it was your cooking fuel, your heating. It was the way that, you know, it was your building material. It was made into barrel stays. Everything was shipped in barrels. So he does a lot of wood cutting. He threshes grain. He grows watermelons. He, uh, he has a load of clams at one point. Uh, so, you know, fishing, farming, a wood trade, and very much in, in the Southern maritime colonial economy. So between Connecticut, Rhode Island, Long Island, you know, this is a whole area that he's operating in. And tell us more about how he was able to eventually um, have property and be successful. You said he went on many adventures. He did. He went on, even went on a whaling voyage at one point. Uh, well, because he, uh, he, amount, he, he saves his money. He works really hard. He saves his money and he buys property. And what's also interesting about that is he doesn't always have all of the money to purchase the property. In this period, another very interesting aspect that he tells us about is this is a time when there are no banks. There's not even a common currency. So he's got Portuguese coins and Spanish dollars and coppers, and he's got colonial paper money. And he's also buying and selling and loaning. He's, he's, uh, he's loaning his own money sometimes. He's also um, borrowing money to purchase property. And he kind of purchases this property that he ends up with uh, in uh, Haddam Neck uh, in kind of bits and pieces and you know, smaller chunks. And he buys it and he earns enough money to pay back the loan and he buys a little bit more. Uh, and that, and so that's really just the story of how any colonial person would have acquired property. But it's also interesting that he really understands that property in that period is the key. That's where your assets are. That's what generates your your income. And uh, and so that's what's really remarkable about the story as well. And what do we know about any kind of education that he, he received while he was uh, growing up uh, on these different uh, farms and, and properties? Yeah, that's an area where scholars have not been able to, def you know, definitely know the answer to that. There's no evidence in the historical record that he received any formal education. But and again, I think if kid, a kid was a you know, student was to ask that question, they would could look to this and look for clues about because clearly the complexity of the colonial economy meant he had to have learned at least how to convert different kinds of you know um, money and dollars and and to, to make transactions, um, economic transactions. So. I feel like I feel like he must have been a natural at math, even if he didn't get any uh, formal uh, education in it. He never signs his name and always marks an X. It's, so it's hard to know how literate he is. But again, when you take the sum total of his success and the kind of work he does and the complexity of his economic dealings, he clearly was a very intelligent and entrepreneurial person. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, I'm curious, what was the reaction um, to his success from white residents at the time uh, when you contrast how uh, blacks were treated in the South? I, the evidence that he 
presents in his narrative indicate that he in, in Haddam and East Haddam in the community where he ended up as a free man, that he had a lot of very uh, trusting business relationships where he could trust his white business partner and they trusted him. Uh, so that's, I think, an indication in the local community how he was um, treated. But there are examples that he tells about how he's cheated. And uh, there's an example with a, uh, an Alicia Hart in um, Saybrook where he's merely a passenger on a, on a passage to, uh, he's heading to New London and they stop in Saybrook to unload a couple of hogsheads of molasses. And one of them falls into the river and the water and is ruined. And even though he he was just a passenger on the boat, he's made to take responsibility, financial responsibility for that. And he tries to fight it and he wants to hire a lawyer and he's sort of advised like, I'm sorry, but you know, this guy Hart is going to just until you will have spent more money on lawyers than you've spent on this hogshead of molasses. So you should just kind of eat this. And he's bitter about that as he should be. So that's a kind of an example where um, it's, it, it, it's not smooth sailing for him for sure. But at the same time, there are uh, pro positive and productive relationships he has with fellow um, you know, white colonial people in the era. In the era. You're listening to Where We Live. My guest today, Elizabeth Norman, she's the author of Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. Uh, this was a man who was enslaved as a boy, would end up being taken to New England, eventually living in our state as a freedman. And she has written a book for students, Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. We're going to talk more about um, how we know so much about Venture's life right after the break and later uh, efforts in our state uh, to require uh, courses in high schools for students to learn Black and Latino history. You can join our conversation, too. Have you heard of Venture Smith before? Join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. My guest today is Elizabeth Norman, author of the book Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. He was once enslaved, but he bought his freedom and would go on to own land in the Haddam, Connecticut area in 1775. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, how do we know so much about Venture's history? I mentioned at the top that he actually had an autobiography. Yes, and I, I want to kind of make a slight correction, which is that the I, if you, on the book cover, it, the first author who's listed is Venture Smith himself. So I want to be clear that the first two parts of half of the book is Venture Smith's own narrative as published in 1798. I have revised it slightly for grade level reading, but I have not novelized it. I have not added anything. I have really tried to stay very close so that this is truly his voice. And then the part that I wrote, our chapter, you know, this the second parts, the uh, third part of the book 
it backs up to tell students about the founding of Connecticut, including the Native American part of the story. One of the important things to me is that this represents colonial Connecticut's founding really as three groups of people, the, of course, the Europeans, the British and the Dutch, but the Native Americans who have been here since for 10,000 years, and, uh, and then the Africans and African-Americans, both enslaved and free. I, I also wanna emphasize that. So Venture Smith's story is, is published by the New London Bee in 1798. And it's really, it's the earliest of the, I'll call them freedom narratives uh, from Connecticut people. Uh, and I believe it really is published at that time because that is a time of great um, change. We're, we're a new state of Connecticut. Slavery is kind of on the wane, but is still, uh, is still legal in Connecticut until 1848. But there's really a spirit of freedom that comes out of the American Revolution. But there's, you know, there's just a lot of change happening in Connecticut. And I, I think it was published at that time when people are getting nervous, I want to say, about the increasing number of free Black people in Connecticut. You know, suddenly the social control of slavery is not there and they're worried. And this is very much a story, I think, that is meant to be reassuring that you know, free black people are going to be doing what free black people are always going to do or black people period is, you know, just living their lives, having their families, you know, pursuing their dreams within the, the you know, challenges and confines of a, of a place that is not completely hospitable. And, that, and that's really why we end up with the story. And it's it's really been known about forever uh, for, since then. I don't think it's ever really fallen out of, you know, historians' knowledge. But to me, it represented a real opportunity to foreground the African-American voice and part of this story to understand colonial Connecticut in a completely new way, a place that really starts with three, at least three important groups of people, very different trajectories, very intertwined, all contributing to what has made Connecticut what it is today. So Elizabeth, tell me more about when his narrative was published. Who did he dictate his story to? Well, again, we don't know exactly. It was not uh, revealed or written down. There's been some, um, we know who published it, but we don't know who wrote it down for him. And we also don't know if they were you know, how, to what extent they might have inserted their own um, opinions. I think that's maybe why it's either it tells us what Venture wanted to know, us to know about his life or maybe, in, in fact, what the person who wrote it down wanted us to know about his life. Uh, but again, it's um, I think it's it's a kind of a political statement. It's unusual from some other narratives in that it doesn't have a strong religious. It wasn't it isn't here as kind of a religious tract, uh, which, which makes it, I think, remarkable as well. You've written this book. Uh, again, you have the words of Venture Smith included as well in Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut with the extra context that you mentioned that you've written. You've written it for students. Why do you think it's important for them to hear this perspective in their school? Again, I think because, well, first of all, let, let me back up to say that the social studies frameworks that the State Board of Education, State Department of Education in Connecticut has issued in 2015 calls in fifth grade for uh, students to study Native American stories, 
your English settlement through the Revolutionary War. So the same time period where adventure is here. Um, and it, but it asks further, he said, it's, you know, asks a few questions. How do Americans define freedom and equality and how have American conceptions of freedom and equality changed over the course of U.S. history for various members, uh, members of various racial, ethnic, religious, and gender minority groups? Is America a land of political, economic, and social opportunity? What was the significance of Connecticut's contribution to the American story? Is the United States a just society and how has the concept of justice evolved over time? And this, Benjamin Smith tells us so many, he provides such a wonderful opportunity for students to explore those very complex questions. So it just seemed to me like a great opportunity to really look at Connecticut history and our state's founding and our nation's founding from a really different perspective than kids are usually finding. So tell us more about Venture Smith. Uh, what happened to him? So he, uh, he you know, lives out his life in Haddam Neck, uh, eventually amassing 134 acres, which is by any measure of a colonial person is, is, is successful. Uh, he's, he's growing raw and wheat and corn that he's got an orchard he has livestock he's got a fishing business he's continuing to, to do wood cutting um, there's a wonderful uh, booklet it was a um, archaeological site and so a lot of evidence about what his life there was like is, is the result of archaeological um, expert exploration and that um, publication is available online uh, and and at the but at the end of the, his life, at the end of the narrative, he says, "I am now 69 years old, though once straight and tall, measuring without shoes, six feet one inch and a half, and every well way well proportioned. I am now bowed down with age and hardship. But amidst all my griefs and pains, I have many consolations. Meg, the wife of my youth, whom I married for love, and bought with my money, is still alive." My freedom is a privilege, which nothing else can equal. I am now possessed of more than 100 acres of land and three habitable dwelling houses. It gives me joy to think I have and that I deserve so good a character, especially for truth and integrity. And I just I think that passage is just so wonderful because he tells us what's important to him. And what's important to him is his family, his wife, it's important his his economic success, and it's important that he has his character is is so well recognized, and we see that too in the gravestones that are in the uh, churchyard in in uh, East Adam at the Congregational Church, uh, and so again, there's many opportunities for kids to. I, I think the important thing, and what what kids have said too, is. We, you, you can learn about colonial history. Here, you, un, you really understand a man. You understand his humanity. Uh, you understand his, uh, his strong sense of self. You feel his quest for freedom. He tells us what that means to him. You see throughout his life, agency and resistance. Uh, he's, in, in some ways, he ends up being typical of a colonial man, and yet he is so not typical. So there's a complexity there that I think really is a rich opportunity for, for education. Now remind us, he died in 1805, so long before Connecticut actually abolished slavery, Elizabeth. Yes, 
Yes, and uh, it, it passed a gradual emancipation law in uh, 1784. And that what that meant was that anyone born into slavery after 1784 would be freed when they when they became 21 years of age. So um, slavery was on its way out uh, in Connecticut. And so more and more um, African African Americans were free, were becoming free in this period. Um, but it's also, you know, it's it's a challenging period, and and I think what's interesting is for then eighth grade that is now studying that next period, is to look at say the Constitution of 1818. Why does Connecticut wait, you know, 30 years to adopt a state constitution? Why is that constitution completely silent about slavery? Uh, next door, New York had abolished it in 1817, uh, the year before. We know. This is very much Connecticut and Rhode Island are the last New England states to abolish slavery. This is very much in the kind of public uh, sense of you know what's happening now. So um, it's very very rich and interesting period. Mm. We know that the scholars and researchers have taken uh, an interest in Venture Smith and other enslaved uh, people over the last uh, few decades. But tell us more about what is left. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned the tombstones in East Haddam, but what about his property? What do we know about that, Elizabeth? Well, the property is actually um, not open to the public because it, it ended up that um, nuclear power plant there was on... Um, was on this it was on this piece of property so while it has been um, explored as an archaeological site it's not a site that you can visit you can see it and kind of in the front inside um, cover of the book i took a photograph kind of across the sand river to the to the property where it would have been um, and um there's also at the East Haddam Historical Society, they have a chest that um, has come down through the family. Um, also, I think one of the most wonderful legacies is every year uh, East Haddam hosts a Venture Smith Day and his descendants come and, and join that celebration every year of Venture Smith's life. Uh, and and the book, I have a little photograph of some of the descendants one of the years, because I think for kids, again, this is a wonderful reminder that, um, you know, there are still living descendants that have carried on Venture Smith's um, life and legacy. You can see part of Elizabeth Norman's uh, book again on our website, WMPR.org slash where we live. Tell us about the picture on the cover. Yes, I, uh, because there are no photographs, of course, from the colonial period. Photography wouldn't be invented for another hundred years uh, or so. Uh, I commissioned an artist, uh, Michael Borders, to create the cover illustration, and, and there's four illustrations on the inside um, cover. He lives in Bloomfield and is a bit of an historian himself, and so he was wonderful to work with. He uh, used his grandson as one of the models for one of the, the boys in the picture. Um, and so it was important to me to to try, you know, it's a beautifully illustrated book. We're on radio, so you can't see, uh, but it has charts and graphs and map, historic maps, but uh, also these five illustrations that Michael Borders did. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for his uh, thoughtfulness and sensitivity in, in creating those illustrations. They're beautiful. This is a great resource for students uh, in our state and also adults, uh, Elizabeth. I'm curious what students have shared with you as they've learned Venture Smith's story. 
And we piloted the the book in uh, a fifth grade in Middletown and uh, in the seventh grade in East Haddam. And we have a number of those uh, quotes from students on, on the VentureSmithsColonialCT.org, our website. Um, and what they tell us, I'll, I'll read one from a fifth grader. This book is good because it tells us what life was like back in our own state of Connecticut. Venture Smith was a very hardworking man. I liked learning about his fan, family. Colonial times were very tough, uh, which of course completely encapsulates <laughs> a lot of the message of Venture's life. Um, and a seventh grader said, part of learning about people, at least for me, is being able to put myself in their shoes and understand why they did what they did and how difficult it was for them to do it. I wanted to learn more. And I, I think the gratifying thing to me was that, so what, what we did was we had set it up where they had to write me a letter uh, after they had done this, you know, used the resource and they had to tell me what they liked about it and what could be improved, what, what I could do better with it. Um, and this was before uh, we, we went to press with it. So we actually did take into account a number of their suggestions for improvement. But they really did find the story as compelling as I did. And I, they, you really got a sense that they connected with who Venture Smith was as a person and that they had that experience where history isn't just this facts and figures and timelines and laws and this, that, you know, that it was lived by real people and they had real struggles and they had real triumphs. And, um, and, and that's, that's all that I had hoped uh, that, that it would accomplish. I also think uh, it's it's interesting with this book when we think about how we've all uh, learned history and uh, important not to only see it from the Eurocentric lens, Elizabeth. Yes, absolutely. Um, because African-Americans have been in Connecticut from the beginning of the colony, you know, from the, you know, and, and they have, there's also importantly not, Slavery is not the only part of that story. There's a, uh, Ruth and Phyllis, Philip Moore in Hartford in the 1600s were free landowning African family, African American family. And uh, so I, we also, I also try to emphasize the freedom part of the story as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to be learning more about efforts in Connecticut uh, to expand uh, the type of history that high school students are learning uh, coming up right after the break. Uh, but Tom is calling in from Manchester. Tom, we just have under a minute. Go ahead with your comment or question. Yes, good morning. Uh, I'm just commenting. I'm of African-American background. I'm glad that your book came out because it was a previous one in 2012 by two white um, college professors from Eastern Connecticut State University, but I guess it went out of print. I remember buying that. But the bone and sinew of the land and um, New England Bound by Wendy Warren and the bone and the sinew of the land by Annalisa Cox, both white female historians, talk about what you had talked about, about um, free blacks, the bone and sinew of the land in the West that were discriminated against in Indiana and five other states that came out two years ago. And the other one, Wendy Warren, talked about um, Connecticut being involved in the slave trade along with uh, Rhode Island and some others uh, that came out in 2016. Um, New England bound, but I'm glad for Venture Smith and others that achieved against the odds. And also James Moore was another black man who spoke out against injustice in Connecticut in the late 1790s and we had Richard Pennington and others and I guess the black 29th and 30th regiments that fought in the Civil War. So we have achieved against the odds and with the Fugitive Slave Act, I think that's uh, another bad part of our uh, history that should never have been proved by the Supreme Court when I saw the movie Harriet 
few years ago, or about a year and a half ago. Uh, but we've achieved throughout the odds, and we've defended this country and contributed. So I think we need to just, you know, have a good balance there that we're here to stay and fight you know, discrimination. Um, uh, we've made our mark in different ways. And I'll end on this. This is the 95th anniversary of Black History Month coming up next month um, from Carter G. Woodson. He passed away many years ago, but he started that in 1926. No Thank you, Tom. Thank you for calling in today here on Where We Live. I've been speaking with Elizabeth Norman. Uh, she was the co-author of Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut, and she's publisher of Connecticut Explored. Coming up after the break, uh, Connecticut has a law to broaden the history taught in high schools. Now, what kind of black and Latino history did you learn about growing up? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've spent some time learning about Venture Smith, who died a free man in Connecticut in 1805. Historian and author Elizabeth Norman uh, was telling us about her book for students about Venture Smith's life in Connecticut. Also, the book includes his own narrative and his own words. Now, students in our state may learn about him because of work by Norman, but how are other students learning about Black and Latino history today? Joining us on Zoom is Dr. Benjamin Foster. He's an adjunct faculty member at Central Connecticut State University, and where he teaches African American studies and religion. Dr. Foster, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much for having me. I understand just this past December, Connecticut became the first state in the nation to require all high schools to, to offer courses on African American, Black, Puerto Rican, and Latino studies. You were part of that journey uh, to get this requirement in place. Uh, tell us what prompted you to get involved. Well, first of all, let me uh, tell you how pleased I am to be on the program with Elizabeth. Uh, she has done such groundbreaking work, and I just want to salute her. Uh, we became involved in the project in uh, 2018. I broached uh, Dr. James Thompson, who's the superintendent of schools in Bloomfield, with my idea that we ought to try and get African-American history on the legislative uh, docket uh, so that our kids would have to take this course. And so we began to organize and we got uh, people such as Dr. Walton Brown Foster, who's a professor at Central Connecticut State University, um, Dr. Stacy Close, uh, and others, uh, historians from around the state, uh, to meet with us in uh, October of 2018. We knew that uh, 2019 represented the 400th year of African-American tenure in these United States. And so we wanted to uh, have it coincide with the 400 year celebration and commemoration that would be occurring all around the nation. And we were able to do that. We convened in uh, January of 2019 at the Legislative Office Building. We had uh, gotten 
Representative uh, Bobby Gibson to really take this bull by the horn and move it through the legislative process, along with Senator Doug, Douglas McCory. The legislation uh, was approved and we began to work with the State Education Resource Center, known as CERC, uh, to develop the curriculum content for African-American studies. Along the way, I was able to contact some of my Latino and Puerto Rican friends, and we got them to also become involved with the effort to write uh, the curriculum content for Latino and Puerto Rican studies. Dr. Foster, I understand that the Connecticut State Board of Education has approved the curriculum for this course. That was the final step needed to implement the requirement. So can you give us an idea of what students will be learning if they elect to take the course in high school? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that it is an elected. We weren't able to get it mandated. But students will be able to as it pertains to the African-American component, it will be in two, two semesters. The first semester, the students will be taught African-American studies. The second semester, they will be taught the Latino-Puerto Rican component. But we start off in the African-American component by teaching our students that we all have a common ancestor based on archaeological and anthropological knowledge that the oldest uh, human ancestor came out of Africa. And we do that so that our students will feel some commonality. We let them know that Homo erectus, uh, the ancestor of Homo sapiens, first stood up and walked in Africa. We talk about some of the African empires in the Egyptian civilization, we talk about the Moors in Spain. We let them know that there were internecine warfare uh, in Africa, which led to enslavement. So we want the kids to know that it was not all uh, caused by European um, merchants and slave traders, that Africans did have some role in the enslavement of their uh, a brotherman. But we are quick to let the students know in the curriculum that Africans were not a monolithic people. And that's a part of the false narrative. So we are trying to uh, eradicate the false narratives as it pertains to African American people. That there were all types of ethnic groups. There were over a thousand languages spoken on the continent. We moved rapidly to 1619 and what took place there. We talk about the Middle Passage. It's not victimization. Many people are fearful of the curriculum because they think that it's about victimization. No, it deals with certainly what happened to the people, the Middle Passage and what they endured and having to be seasoned in the West Indies prior to being sold in the North America, but we talk about some of the triumphs, mm -hmm. the survival. And, and then we go on to talk about some of the vast contributions that African-Americans have made to these United States in their 400-year uh, tenure here. And so that's some of the information that will be given to our kids. We talk about the post-Obama uh, period. We talk about Connecticut. 
we go into a, a, a little more detail about the great people that uh, came out of Connecticut who uh, made an indelible mark on African-American history, um, both black and white. We talk about Harriet uh, Bleacher Stowe, John Brown. Uh, we talk about Lemuel Haynes, the first African-American to be ordained by a mainline uh, church uh, denomination, the Presbyterians. He was also uh, a Revolutionary War patriot, born in, in the West Hartford, Connecticut. We talk about uh, Chuck, Chuck Stone, the great um, journalist who helped Adam Clayton Powell move through a great legislation that enabled uh, people to uh, get more of the things that they were striving for in the civil rights movement. Hmm. And, and so I believe it's a tremendous curriculum. There always is room for improvement, but we've started something that I believe will enable our children to have a better understanding of one another. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, Dr. Foster, that this is an elective. Uh, are you worried that, that many students are still going to miss out on all of uh, this great information that you just shared? Well, certainly I am, but uh, we have uh, we've made it very clear to the State Board of Education that we will need uh, intensive professional development for teachers and that there needs to be ongoing outreach to superintendents and instructional leaders of schools, the principals. Having been a principal myself, I know what it entails. You have to work with the teachers and those in guidance to let them know how important the course is and have the buy-in that's necessary. Um, in 2006, as the district coordinator for social studies in a school district, I developed curriculums and in the same topics that we're discussing today. And we, we saw that it required the counselors being involved, really seeing the value of the courses. And that will have to be done. And it will take, as I said before, the buy-in from superintendents, from principals, counselors, and of course, parents will have to understand what the curriculum is all about. I understand that high schools will begin offering this in the fall of 2022. Uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask Elizabeth Norman, uh, your, your thoughts on these courses that will be offered along the lines of it's so important to make this history accessible to all. Well, I can't, I, I can't agree more. And I know I'm 100% with Dr. Foster who would like to see this history taught um, in all grades. And that's part of why we have included uh, African-American history in our third grade book. Uh, and uh, again, Ven Venture Smith, because it's for fifth grade, you know, around the fifth grade curriculum, it happens to focus on the colonial period, but we have quite a lot of resources around Connecticut's uh, African-American history up through the 20th century on the Connecticut Explored website. We've covered that often in the magazine because it's great American history. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm with Dr. Foster, who I know would love to see this really mandated for all grades. And, and I know he's working. I think that's, I don't want to speak for him. I think that's his next objective. 
Dr. Foster, uh, we just have uh, two minutes left, and so uh, final thoughts as we think about, again, uh, this requ- this uh, course being offered in, in high schools uh, soon, another year or so. That's correct. Um, let me just say that I believe that our children and you uh, need to be totally aware of one another's culture in order for our nation to reach its maximum potential promise of democracy and enable all of us to achieve the American dream in our ever-increasing nanotechnological society. And I believe that when our children began to see themselves and their significant group in a more positive light, especially those young people who are marginalized, it will enable them to be inspired to fulfill their aims and aspirations. I first wanted to do this while serving as a principal of a predominantly uh, black high school. And we were trying to get our kids to really do better in math and science. And I would often hear the kids saying that the information that our teachers were trying to get them to really absorb was for whites. Mm -hmm. And so I began the effort then to let them know about the black scientists and and others who have made contributions to America. It's just not in our textbooks. And as well, thank you, Dr. Foster. Group, thank you so much for telling us about your work, and we can't wait to follow up and see uh, how this uh, curriculum rolls out in just another year. Dr. Benjamin Foster and also Elizabeth Nor- Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel.